Good morning, interweb. Welcome back to the Artifexian podcast. In this month's episode, Bill and I cook some ancient breakfasts, and Abeski cooks a sky jellyfish. South Korea may lose its baller age reckoning system. More on retrograde climates, animate mass nouns, and a discussion on the different styles of world building. All that, plus lots of chewing, you have been warned, in this month's episode. Shall we have breakfast? Well, one of us is going to have breakfast. The other one of us didn't follow the rules. The other one of us misunderstood the assignment. Do do, do you want to care to explain to people what it is we're meant to be doing and what it is we're going to do? We were meant to be having breakfast together on air and talking about it. Um, And I misunderstood that and thought we were going to just talk about the food that we had made and eaten previously. Um... I still have some of my sauce left, so I might just go like butter a slice of bread and have some sauce with it. Oh yeah, go for it. So okay. while you're gone, I'll explain more stuff, so I'll see you in a bit. All right, back shortly. <laughs> so specifically what we're doing, folks, is um, uh, Bill is has made some um, Egyptian food, uh, Egyptian breakfast food, per the book Cooking in Ancient Civilizations, links in the show notes, and I have made some Mesopotamian food. Um, I don't know what Bill has made exactly, but what I have made is, and there's pictures in the show notes and chapter art, I have made some whole wheat flatbread, I've made my own uh, mustard cheese, and I've made yogurt soup. It doesn't look like yogurt soup, because apparently all the grain in my yogurt soup consumed the soup part of the soup, so it looks kind of like couscous, but still. And I also have a beer... Uh, here, one I did not brew myself because I do not have the time, patience, or skill to that. So I just bought a nice Polish beer. Um, it's anachronistic and it's breaking immersion, but here we are. And like I said, Bill has made some Egyptian thing. I don't really know what he's made, and he'll be back in a moment to uh, talk to us about this. We're also going to do the show in reverse order this month. So we're going to do like the green room room part first, which is going to be the talking about the cooking stuff. And then we're going to do world building. And then we're going to finish up with follow-up purely because if we did it the normal way, we'd be eating at the end of the show and then all the food would be cold and that would be no fun. And then the final thing is trigger warning. There will be chewing. There will be a lot of chewing. I'm going to try and minimize the chewing by moving the mic away, but you have been warmed. People who are sensitive to to it, there will be some chewing. It's inevitable. Um, I've I've got a very handy hotkey on my my, my keyboard to to mute my microphone. Excellent. I can can just, I can slurp and, and champ away and just turn that off so come here to me what i explained to the folks what i made uh what did you make and also bill's food there'll be pictures of bill foods in the usual places as well so explain what what it is you made and ate um i made a recipe of pan fried kidneys which was in the book as a breakfast recipe from ancient egypt um now the book did say that the, the scholarship was a little kind of muddy that wasn't often written down so it's kind of speculative uh, but it's known that kidneys were eaten, um, and the sauce is kind of a kind of a speculative one. It was the same with the Mesopotamian stuff as well. It was like so little was written down, and mm-hmm. and so little of the basic stuff was written down. The book made the analogy that like um, think about how many times in the modern world someone has written down the recipe for making a cup of tea. It's just yeah. it's just kind of assumed knowledge, and so they have to like reconstruct and speculate, etc. So this is probably not exactly a Mesopotamian or an Egyptian breakfast, but like. 
there is it's based on some historical facts so that's cool there is although um an iso standard for tea for making tea no yeah i bet you it's wrong because everyone makes tea the perfect way of making tea is the way any given person makes tea and if you try and deviate from that it's just wrong there there is only one country that has objected to the protocol ireland england ireland ireland objected on technical grounds and um, possibly for not pre-warming the the vessels um but who who actually pre-warms the vessels though come on i do get bill get out i, I do you no you, you don't i swear to god i do you convinced me of it when we lived together what did i i never pre-warmed the vessels we lived together and you like didn't expect you did like a blind test the blind taste test with me where you made me two cups of tea and one was in a pre-warmed mug and asked me which one was better and I said the pre-warmed one was slightly better I have no recollection of that yeah yeah wow I convinced you to do this madness Jesus so yeah I I, I scald the mug and I usually scald the the teapot as well hmm if I'm making a full pot sorry folks we're, we're completely off topic here do you put the how, how do you make tea Talk us through it from start to finish. So am I making a mug or am I making a pot? You're making a mug. A mug. So I'll boil the kettle and I'll like half fill the, the mug with the, the boiled water and swirl it around and empty it out. And then I'll put in a tea bag and I'll like put in the boiling tea, the boiling water. Um, ideally, I leave it stand for a while. Leave it stand for a minute or two. Um, fish out the tea bag, add some milk. Correct. I agree with most of that. I, I think people who put the milk in while the tea bag in is weird. Um, and people who leave the tea bag in for the entirety of the drinking event is also weird. I don't understand it. I, I have been known to do both of those, but my standard is the other. Have you got a preference for the type of vessel the tea is contained in? Um, I, I am kind of picky about the, the, the qualities of the mug. Mm. It should be kind of should be kind of hefty. It should be sturdy, mm. like a thin... A thin mug doesn't feel right. It feels wrong in the hand. I, I'm totally with you on that, on that bill. And, and the mad thing is, like, you know, if you look, cr- like, cross-culturally, anytime someone offers you tea in that culture's, like, traditional teacup, it's always thin. And I'm just, I'm just like, has every culture got this wrong? Like, you have to have a big, a big bru- bruiser of a mug to put the tea in. Otherwise, it feels and tastes weird. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Um, very strange. And it happens all the time. Like, I remember we had tea in Korea, little thin mugs, and then we had tea in Morocco, little thin mugs. And I'm like, you are worlds apart, but you're all making the wrong decision. I wonder, is part of it, like, that it's it's easier to make um, a big hefty mug than it is fine, delicate china? So that's kind mm. of seen as a, you know, a status thing, or it's, it's a, a nice object to use rather than intimately connected to the the quality of the tea itself i mean that's um, that that is probably it that is probably it uh, of late i have taken to uh, i've been brainwashed i've been radicalized by by the captain um and i've <laughs> i've taken to drinking tea out of travel mugs and at first when i first saw this i was like that's barbaric like you drink tea out of a like a big feck off mug and then um things like oh i need to go i need to hop in the car immediately after getting up i'll just put the tea in a travel mug so i can drink it along the way and then 
I eventually became okay with that. And then I was like, but wait a minute, when the tea is in the travel mug and the little little lid is closed, it stays warmer way longer. This mm. is much better. And now I'm habitually drinking out a travel mug and I kind of hate myself for it. No, I think it's okay. Um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't judge you for it. Others would though. So come here to me. Um, your recipe. Uh, talk, talk me through it. What did you do? What did it involve? Uh, was there any stories around gathering of ingredients that are interesting? Because I have some. Um, talk me through your your process and what you learned. So as I said, I was making pan fried kidneys, and the sauce was a vinegar and mustard sauce. Mmm. Mmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um. So. First of all, getting the kidneys was slightly difficult. Um, I went to a few places. Um, there's a kind of a food hall near where I live, which used to have like a really good organic butchers. Um, and I hadn't been in in a while. And I went in and the butcher has retired. So Aww. there were no kidneys to be found there. And then I went to two Eastern European shops, which both had like butcher counters and neither stocked lamb kidneys. Um, and eventually I went to... Uh, another butcher's nearby to me. Um, and the recipe called for one pound of lamb kidneys. And I got all of the kidneys he had, which was half a pound. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess it's just, maybe I timed it weird or something, or it was just unfortunate when I went to look for them, but it was it was you know, slightly difficult to actually get them. Um, but I got them. What I could not get was powdered mustard. Yeah, nor, nor could I, but there's an easy fix for that. What was your easy fix? You buy mustard seeds and you, you bang them in a mortar and pestle until you make your own powdered mustard. That is precisely what I did. I also had the idea of getting a pepper mill and grinding them like pepper in a pepper mill. Because, you know, they're kind of similar size to peppercorns. Hmm, um, that could work. So I got one in Tesco's um, and I'm always weird about using stuff directly from shops, even though it had been in a you know, in a sealed box or whatever. So I washed them. And then when I went to grind it the next day, it hadn't fully dried out. So they got, got a little bit gunged up. So I, I did end up using the, the mortar and pestle. Wait, wait, sorry, back off. You're a little bit weird about using items from dire- directly from shops. And, and like anything, anything like that, any like kitchenware or anything or... What, okay, what's the rationale here? Because, I don't know, it might be gross. It might be dirty. Wow. Jesus, I would not think that way. I, I would imagine that it's probably dirtier, like, when I take it home and begin to use it. I'd imagine it's hyper-sterile in a shop, no? Uh, I wouldn't imagine hyper-sterile. Uh, I, guess, like... I guess lots of people be touching the things, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, maybe. I, 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 I've never washed an implement bought from a shop outside of, like, you use it and then you put it in a dishwasher. But I've never, like, pre-washed it to make sure it's clean. That's, that's mad. Oh, I always do. Wow. Mm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, uh, so the your mustard sauce, uh, or your mustard and vinegar sauce, so you had to basically make your own, like, mustard puree. Uh, well, mustard powder. Mustard powder. Yeah. Okay, I'll just, just sprinkle that in the thing. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so I, I did a test run yesterday um, with one of my three kidneys that I had gotten. Um... And are you still eating? Yeah, man. Okay, well, bear with me for this. Um, you know, you know what the biological function of a kidney is. Yeah, it's where the where your thinking happens. 
Yes, and I, I mean, maybe some culture has believed that at some point. Yeah, the kidneys for processing urine, isn't it? Or for making urine. Yeah. Mm. Um, and after I cooked this first kidney, boy, did I know. Oh, no way. Did the, did the lamb or something forget to go to the bathroom before it was slaughtered? I, I don't know what the story was, but it, it's, it smelled real bad. Oh. Oh, it no. It smelled real bad. Um, and I had like, I the, the recipe had called, called it to be soaked in milk um, to, to remove like that kind of, that flavor mm. uh, and that smell. Um, and that did not work. So I looked it up and I asked a few people who, who you know, were more experienced with, with uh, that cut. Um, and apparently you, you're meant to, because I, I never, no, I'm a, I'm a reasonably decent cook, you know this. I... I I, I like cooking, but I just, I'd never worked with, with um, kidney before. Hmm. Uh, you're supposed to cut it open and like remove some stuff inside. And they often come in a membrane that you have to remove. Now, mine, mine didn't come in the membrane, but I did. I hadn't taken out some of the, some of the fatty stuff that's on the inside of the kidney. Oh, Jesus. Um, so yeah, I, I, literally the one I, I had yesterday, the one I made yesterday, I, I, I couldn't eat it. Wow. Yeah, I know. It was, it was horrible. And then, but um, I'm assuming you've ate some kidneys. So what was the difference between the other kidneys and this kidney? Well, the ones that I made this morning, mm. I did cut them open and remove that oh, stuff. You did and it. also, I soaked them. I soaked them overnight, um, wow. rather than just for an hour, um, just to be, you know, absolutely on the safe side. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing, like what you're saying about kind of assumed knowledge. Um, you know, it's 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 unlikely you're going to find anyone writing down how to make a cup of tea. I guess the the people who wrote this cooking in ancient civilizations book. Kind of assumed people would know how to work with awful. Um, yeah. Which I did uh, not. My response to a lot of the recipes in my section of the book was that, um, like, they're presented as things like, oh, this would be a dinner for a peasant farmer or whatever. And it was just mad the amount of times that the, the ingredients being used are just, like, completely non-standard today. And, like, you remember, like, you saying you had to go to many butchers or whatever. I had to do the same thing, try and get some of the ingredients to make this breakfast. Um mm-hmm to find the various different types of wheat uh, that apparently were just common back in the day and to find the stuff to process cheese or whatever. Uh, and it just seems like that was something that all peasant farmers just had on on hand and had knowledge of working with. Mm. Whereas we, we, we've completely lost that. Like, it's mad. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to what we were saying before about kind of technology, that it isn't, you know, a, a straight, strictly linear thing and skills and stuff are actually lost. Yeah, but I think in our case, it might be response to technology because like, you know, so much of the stuff, like if I, I thought about it during the week and I was like, so much of the stuff I made, make and eat on the regular is just either pre-cooked or it's canned and things and it's prepared and like the sort of, yeah, the knowledge of how to prepare these things um, is kind of almost gone. Like if you ask anyone how to make cheese, they probably wouldn't know, like I wouldn't have been able to give you even a vague idea of how cheese is made. I'm just like, you go to the supermarket, you pick up the cheese. Like that's how mm-hmm. cheese is made. Like it arrives, yeah. it arrives made. And <laughs> the minute you, the minute you, uh, you step outside of that, it's so tedious. Like making the cheese man was, it was a two day affair. <laughs> like it was so much to making this cheese. Uh, it was just mental. Like, so just, I felt, I kept thinking like, geez, these peasant farmers must have been so overworked. And then I remember, and I remember to think like, no, they, they this would just be something that they could do you know, quick, fast, and be and be fine for sure. Um, and so your and you, your picture shows the kidney 
plus sauce with a slice of bread. Is that what the recipe called for? Or would the Romans just eat the, or would the Egyptians just eat the kidney, just you know, take it in hand and eat it? I, I didn't really specify. Oh, so that was a bill. The bread was a, a bill twist on the recipe. Exactly. Yeah. The bread, the bread was, was my little flourish. Um, I'll tell you one thing uh, uh, about my meal. The, the bread, right? The, the not having access to um, a lot of yeasts or self-raising flour is weird to me. Like the bread I'm eating now is like it's unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is a bit strange. Like it's, it's, it's quite tough and the colder it gets, the harder and more inedible it gets, um, which is just very weird to my modern palate. Um, and apparently the book was saying that like a lot of people would, would uh, in urban in urban Mesopotamian centers, they would snub going to bakeries um, for this very reason, because they'd, if the bakery made bread or whatever, it would very quickly deteriorate. And so the off-the-shelf breads would be nowhere near as good as the stuff that you make at home that you could eat immediately, which is like the polar opposite of now. Like, you know, if I make my own bread now, it's going to be crap and it'd be much better if I just go to like the bakery section of Tesco and get a beautiful loaf of bread. It's a direct reverse. I guess. Yeah, I suppose if you're getting from like a bakery kind of thing. But um, if, if you're good at it, I think homemade bread is better than your average shop-bought bread. Yeah, it, no, it, but if you're good at it, but I think like well, I certainly am not um, and I would say a lot of people I know wouldn't wouldn't say that their breads would be better than uh, like a, a shop bought bread. Maybe yeah, maybe better than like crap, you know, sponge bread like the American white bread crap. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe better than that. But if someone tried to make like a, a soda bread, for example, my soda bread would be nowhere near as good as a soda bread made made in the bakery. I think. Yeah. Um, but and I thought that was a really interesting sort of role reversal that it's like the urbanites. They wouldn't be, you wouldn't have a bunch of hipster Mesopotamians hanging outside bakeries getting their like bespoke bread because that would be just <laughs> not as good as what they can make, which I think is really fun. <laughs> uh, a thing that came up in, in the book for me that I, I, I want to share, if that's okay with you. Yeah, of course. Man, this, this, this flatbread is getting real intense. I, my, my non, my non soup. Oh, I never explained this to you. So I, I, I tried to make yogurt soup. Yogurt soup? Mm, actually, yeah. That's, that's a like, crazy idea. Sorry, that's really... I should, I should talk about this. It's interesting. So, you get a bunch of bulgur wheat, right? Very good. And you lather it in natural yogurt. And then you bake it. So you dehydrate the the, the wheat. And all the yogurt basically kind of like either is absorbed into the wheat or evaporates. And you end up, at the end of the day, with a bunch of bulgur wheat that looks identical to bulgur wheat, but has a faint waft of like natural yogurt on it. And then you use that to like thicken up a broth of uh, water, cumin, chickpeas, and onion, right? Okay. And it's it's a really nice taste, man. Like, I was, I kind of went with that recipe just because I was like, that's going to be horrible. But it's really lovely. The problem is, though, I made this yesterday, so I didn't have to do too much cooking this morning. And the bloody bulgur wheat ate all of my yogurt soup. So the bowl that looks like couscous on the picture I sent you, that's actually meant to be a soup. With a bit of, with, with a bit of wheat like in the soup, but it's actually just like the soup is all in the wheat, um, and I didn't want to add more water to water it down because then it just wouldn't be as tasty. But but it's really nice. It's still it's still tasty. It's still it's still really tasty. It's just definitely not a soup. Okay. Um, what was the other thing I was going to say? Oh yeah yeah yeah. So so the um, um thing they were talking about in the book was the so social etiquette surrounding um eating 
through various time periods. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. this is this is kind of immediate like world building relevance, I suppose. Um, because it's like they talked about how in Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia at least, that um, there was um, a restriction on who can attend formal dinners. Some some cultures or peoples within Mesopotamia um, were allowed women to attend. Uh, some did not. Uh, some did allow women to attend, but they'd have to like sit and behave in a different way to the men. And um, I think that's something that's immediate relevant and something that maybe, uh, you know, I don't think about. Like, I don't go to a restaurant and be like, why are there women here? You know, it's, it's everyone just goes to the restaurant. Um, and that it, I think that's a fun idea. Well, not a fun idea, but it's an idea to think about, like, the different societal roles and whether or not they can partake in the act of eating and how do they partake in the act of eating, mm-hmm. I think, is, a, is an interesting one. And, and the book talked about how um, the the men uh, in Mesopotamia, it would be um, customary for them to recline whilst eating, which I was like, like like in on a chaise lounge sort of jazz, you know, like just yeah. to paint me like one of your French girls. And I'm like, that's a really awkward way to eat, do you know, like yeah. it's it just it's not very ergonomic i suppose but they would do that as a sign of status and then any women that were present um they were not allowed to do that they'd have to sit like bolt upright and i was kind of like i don't i i could imagine there never being a sort of woman's revolt in mesopotamia over this because it'd be like clearly this is so much better like we don't want to do what the men are doing here because god eating reclined would just be awful i think i, don't, I wouldn't be able to do that i can't imagine it being comfortable or eating digestion in any way or mm. like like even like drinking from like a glass while lying down is mm. really awkward yeah exactly yeah or like lying on your side and trying to drink a cup of tea it's, it's, you know. it's amazing the amount of times that we, we humans end up doing the thing that is the most awkward for some like nonsense social reason yeah do you know anything about because you've, you've done a little bit of traveling do you know anything about various different like eating etiquettes um, from around the the world, like as in, like yeah, you know, who eats, how they eat, when they eat, that sort of thing. Uh, I don't actually know. I don't really know, and I, I'd imagine there would be a a great um diversity in it. Um, do you not pick up something in? Oh God, where were you? Zambia, Zimbabwe, yeah. Zambia, Zambia. Do you, anything from Zambia? Um. Not, not in terms of, of kind of the social stuff around it, no. Hmm. Um, but like, you know, I, I, w- I was eating primarily with the, the group that I went there with, you know. Hmm. Um, we did get given some meals in, in a few places that we visited. Um, and what, what, what was the jazz like? Eating at tables, eating on the floor, uh, cutlery, that sort of thing. What was the... Oh, no, e- eating, eating, um, like just out of, out of a bowl in your hands, as I remember. Um, uh, no cutlery. Uh, I mean, there there often was cutlery, but the 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 normal way to eat there, um, from what I remember, uh, was so so the their staple is enshima. Oh, what's that? Um, it's it's they have it in, in lots of different places. It's essentially kind of like a a maize porridge. Hmm. Okay. Um, there, there's there's different names for it in different places. Um. Oh god, let me let me check what it's called in, in other places. Um, it's kind of it's a little bit like polenta in mm. in um, Italy, 
It's called Ugali or Pap in 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 other places. Um, so yeah, it's made from it's made from um, cornmeal, and it's kind of boiled into sort of a porridge. And the from what I remember, in the bit of Zambia we were in, the the normal way to do it is you you kind of take it with your hand and uh, dip it in the relish or dip it in the the, the stew or whatever. Mm. Um, it's quite tasty, I have to say. I I I enjoyed it quite a lot. I've always been in in, in meaning to make it, but I have gotten around to it. Oh, next episode, uh, what's called traditional Zambian cooking with Edgar and Bill. <laughs> um, I remember we were in Morocco and uh, our tour guide for the desert, he was like, um, I don't know why we ended up doing this. Oh, we ended up not being able to go home for a, a few hours. And we were like, what the hell do we do? And then he was like, you're going to hang out with me. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so we went, we went like. So where did you say this was? In Morocco. Morocco, and so we went. We went like a dune riding. Like we took his his jeep and we went like racing up and down dunes and stuff. And then we stopped for dinner in his in his family home. And in his family home, it was very. Um, I was kind of surprised at uh, the the sex segregation around eating because it was like the his his wife came out and she she was like oh we've guests let me make some food and she made like a, a bunch of food and we're sitting on the floor there's like a big t- big bowl in the middle and you're given like flatbread to scoop up the contents of of what's in the big bowl um but crucially there was the duplicates of everything and the um young i think they were young girls they might have been young boys you know there's that age when they're very small where you're like i don't know what you are yeah. um they were all with with the mother and she was like positioned uh, further away from us and the, the 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 tour guide, the father. So it's it appeared to be segregated based on kind of like man plus guest and then the rest of family, and and that was kind of weird. I like I was like, um, I don't want to say uncomfortable because you know different cultures and that sort of jazz, but it was kind of like why can't they all come and eat with us? You know, I didn't obviously say anything, but I, I was, I was kind of mad uh, to be, and particularly because of the, the sort of like the communal element where there's a big giant serving thing in the middle and everyone eats from that. It's like the setup is communal, but we're going to make it not communal. Mm. Um, which kind of weirded me out a little bit. And then yeah. like, contrast to Korea where like in Korea, a Korean barbecue is a big thing. And that whole shtick is just hyper communal. It's like everyone, or at least in in a restaurant, everyone sits uh, in front of a big big ass hot plate with all the food frying on it at once, and everyone just like you know grabs and takes and things like that, which I think is great. And I think it's really sad that in in Western culture we don't have that. It's all kind of like you know you go to a restaurant, you're served your plate of food, and it's all very kind of like this is mine. Like I, I really like the vibe of. There's just food scattered everywhere and everyone's mm. lunging over people and taking bits and you don't order for yourself. You order as a, as a group. I think that's really cool. Yeah, I like that idea. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, another interesting story from my part of the book was um, there's this bizarre thing the book asserts in that uh, the gods in, in Mesopotamia um, needed to be fed. Because, you know, the divine beings also need to have earthly food, which is a bit mad when you think about it. But anyways, um, <laughs> so the way that would happen is that they'd apparently they'd cook a whole bunch of food and they'd like bring it to the temple and then they would like close a curtain. And then that would be like the gods are dining. And then after a while, the priest would like open up the curtains and then they'd take the left, like air quotes, leftovers out. And those leftovers would be given to the people. 
Um, and I was like, that's, that's mad. Like, is there someone who goes in there and like, a bit like, you know, Santa with the, the carrot and the milk, do they just kind of take away the carrot and milk <laughs> and be all like, look, the gods have eaten. But apparently it was tradition that the gods, um, it was known that the gods only ate with their eyes. So you just need to show them all the food and they consumed the food visually. And then so the equivalent amount of food would go would come out of the temple as went into the temple, um, which the book contrasts with, I think it was Rome or something where there was a similar-ish tradition but uh, you would burn the food so the gods would consume the the smoke of the food. Mm. Um, which, to be fair, I think the Mesopotamians are onto something there because you don't want to like, go into the effort of making you know, like prime Wagyu beef and then burning it. <laughs> you know, it'd be much better idea if the gods could just eat it uh, offhand or just uh, visually. Um, and then I thought it was really fun. Like, you know, let's all, much like we go like in some cultures, some Western cultures, like we did like... Uh, pray give thanks for the food and it's like we need to just park the food here and let the gods eat first and then we can eat i think that's a really fun little cultural thing yeah um, and like they, they still get kind of the the first dibs in it but it's not actually not actually changed or not actually kind of destroyed or anything yeah exactly yeah and yeah i mean there's a whole oh, there's so much there that i really enjoy like just from a cultural angle because of the whole like um uh honoring gods and like uh subserviences built into that and just like a whole bunch of layers to that little mm. tradition and that i find really really interesting um the in the egyptian section mm. so uh, regarding gods there, w- there was a story that uh or there was a a point made that for a while fish was considered taboo in egyptian culture what and um, now not not like necessarily very widespread um, are ri- rigidly enforced, but there was a degree of taboo um, for the eating of fish, and possibly because uh, fish ate Osiris's phallus when he was dismembered, and he was like thrown into the thrown into the water, and that was the bit that like wasn't recovered because fish ate it. Who was Osiris? So Osiris is like the the I think it was Osiris. Um, he's like one of the 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 kind of chief gods one of the top boys, and he gets, his kind of origin is he's dismembered and um, his his body parts are scattered. And then his wife, Isis, I think, gathers up all the pieces and reassembles them. Now that's a dog from Downton Abbey, man. What is? Isis? No, never mind, it was a joke, never mind. Okay, no, I haven't seen Isis. I haven't seen Downton Abbey. <laughs> I haven't seen Isis. <laughs> um no the the shtick is that um the Earl of Grantham, the like the 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 guy who owns the Abbey, um he names all his animals Hugh after Bonifle, yeah. What? Hugh Bonifil. That's it, yeah. He names all his animals after I I don't know if it's exclusively Egyptian gods, but it's gods. And so he has this adorable Labrador called Isis. Um which I off, which I found really strange because it's a very there's something I don't know, there's something evil about the word Isis. It sounds very nasty, Isis. Do you think? Uh, yeah, I don't think that's a, a cute name so. at all. I um, like it. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying I don't like it, but I don't think I'd name a cute Labrador Isis. Um, I, I don't. It doesn't have the right mouthfeel for me. It sounds sinister. Maybe it's all the sibilants. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so fish are taboo because the fish ate your man's uh, phallus. Yeah, that's that's one of the the things in in the chapter. Yeah. That's so weird. Food taboos, I, I find a very fascinating part of our culture as well, because 
oftentimes they just don't make any sense whatsoever. We're, we're us humans. We're a big fan of telling people not to do things. Mental. Well, how do we ever land on this as a modus operandi? Don't understand. Um, there is a. Um, sp- this isn't really taboo, but it's uh, again it's just uh, leading on from uh, stuff I was saying earlier. Um, milk apparently in ancient Mesopotamia had um, a weird sort of taboo non-taboo is like it had an ambiguous social status um in that because uh you know peasant farmers or whoever have a bunch of cows um milk the, the product of those cows was seen as being very lower class um you drink milk therefore you must own a bunch of cows therefore you are not an urbanite like me you are lesser etc that sort of mm-hmm. thing um but also, apparently, it was extremely common to offer milk to the gods in, uh, give me a second, in, yeah, in, like, these ornate, like, alabaster uh, libation vessels. I don't okay. know what that means, but apparently there's a big deal about offering milk to the gods. I think um, libation just means drink. A drink poured out as an offering to a deity, okay. Oh, all right. Oh, that's... Wow, that's that is a very specific word, Jesus. Um, but it's also it's also used as kind of like offhandedly as a drink in general. If oh. you're being jocular. Jesus, man, this bread keeps getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so tough. It's I'm I am eating rubber. It is the book was not lying when it said eat it immediately out of the oven. Jesus Mm-mm. Christ. Anyhow, um yeah, so offering milk to the gods was was a big deal as well. And there was kind of like, uh, the book doesn't know why the double think was occurring here, but they speculate it might be something like um, milk went through blessings before it it was served to the gods to like rid it of his lower class status. Or right. or it was uh, milk that was necessarily gotten from like temple, temple cows, which are different from, you know, the working class cow <laughs> and all this sort of jazz. So there seemed to be like this weird, um, yeah status of milk and they kind of were a little bit particular about like what the milk is doing <laughs> in respect to like social order which i think mm. is a bit nuts from from a blessed herd um it's it's less it's classy then and i guess i guess we kind of do the same thing with like like alcohol to a degree because i mean like a, a brandy is classy as all hell but if you drink <clears throat> god this bread man Jesus. But if you drink like um cheap cider out of a plastic bottle, it's considered not very classy. So I guess I guess we kind of do this with, with a lot of foods anyways, you know? Yeah, that kind of makes sense. There, there's more there's more to it than just what the substance is. No, like the presentation of it and like yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I guess yeah, the same milk presented in the correct vessel might be like, "Whoa, fancy." Um Apparently, in ancient Egypt, uh, milk was part of the ritualized offerings for the dead. Really? Yeah. So it says here, the earliest recorded reference to milk is in the funerary offerings for King Unas, who had milk, three kinds of beer, and five kinds of wine for the afterlife. (laughs) That man was not spoiled at all, was he? Five kinds of wine. Jesus Christ. Um... Hold on a second. I want to pull up. I want to pull up a list here. Um, give me a second, because this 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 list kind of blew my mind. But you need to um, bear with me. Sorry, I have a physical copy in front of me here, so lots of lots of noise, lots of table uh, page turning. Hey, there's the table noise. Um, yeah. So 
Another thing that hit me was, um, and I probably should have known this already, but the amount of foods that like just weren't present in the ancient world. And, mm. and I, sh- I should specify again, like... The didn't book- have pizza. <laughs> yeah, they, didn't. they had no bubble tea is what they had. Um, I should specify that this book, like this book uses the term ancient world, but it's, it's clearly uh, using that in reference to only uh, Mesopotamia, Egypt, uh, Greece and Rome. Yeah. So it makes no assertions when it says ancient world. It says it makes no assertions about anywhere outside of uh, those those areas. Um. But yeah. So we have potatoes, squashes, pumpkins, not present. Um. Most beans not present. Um. Carrots in their modern. I knew this, but carrots in their modern mm-hmm. incarnation is being orange, not a thing. They were just all colors under the sun. Um. All vegetables apparently were uh, a lot bitter, thinner, and less fleshier than they currently are, which makes sense. Um, Maize isn't there. Rice isn't there. Uh, Chicken was not a staple for, like, many, many years, until the pre-classical period, they they say. Um, uh, Turkey's not there. Um, Cinnamon, ginger, cloves, nutmegs, cardamom all not there and the list goes on and on and on about stuff that isn't there sugar sugar not there and even when sugar did make its way across it was apparently only really used for medicine and not for sweetening they do that with fruit juices um coffee tea chocolate vanilla distilled spirits weren't there it's like everything was like hard flatbread mental Mm. crazy yeah i like a lot of those things hmm I was thinking that. And the mad thing was like, if you think about the idea of tomatoes not being there and you think of like Rome, sure, it, like Italy and tomatoes are like synonymous. That's, yeah, their, yeah. Whole, that's their whole thing. And it's like, it, it's, a, it's an import. Mad. Yeah. It's only been like 400 years. Yeah. It's insane. Nah, um, 600. Well, but yeah, but it hasn't been since antiquity. Yeah. Um, which is just, it's just absolutely mental. Um, but yeah. So that is, how long have we been doing this? We're 40 minutes, dear God. Just a quick review on the food I made here. Again, pictures will be on screen. Um, yogurt soup, absolutely delicious. So again, that was a bunch of um, bulgur wheat used to thicken up a broth made with water, chickpeas, onions, and not cinnamon, not cinnamon, cumin. Really, really lovely and surprisingly lovely. I could eat that every day. Um, cheese, mustard cheese. Also very lovely, and I'm shocked I managed to make something that is cheese. Like, absolutely shocked. Um, and, is it like, once you get your hand on all the expensive and uh, rare ingredients, it's actually, cheese is actually not that bad to make. Like, it's actually quite doable. Um, it's just a tedious getting all, all the things. It uh, The cheese I made tastes like a very mild feta, and I have more of it left, and I'm going to try and mature it over the weeks and months to something that's more tangier um flatbread delicious can only be eaten immediately after being cooked otherwise it's rubber um the idea of not having self-raising flour or any sort of leavening agent is just insanity to me and i don't know how they how they functioned without there being some degree of airiness to their bread products like everything is like a dense brick and that's mad and then i make no comment on beer because i bought a polish beer i did not brew my own beer Um, what are your what are your uh, s- summation and and talking points uh, finalizing talking points around your breakfast that you ate without me? Um, well, I ate some of it with you. 
Oh, yeah, you ate the sauce. Yeah, I had a slice of bread with the sauce. Um, okay, so uh, kidney, and I suppose working with any other offal, um, make sure that you know what to do with it, that it's not necessarily good to go right from the butchers. Um, that's that's on me. Um, but, you know, learn from that mistake. Uh, yeah, the sauce wasn't all that nice, uh, to be honest. Um, Interesting. Yeah, so I tried to follow the thing as, as closely as I could, so maybe something went wrong somewhere, but it just it just was very kind of, had this kind of harsh bitterness to it. I know it was vinegar, but it wasn't really, like, and I love vinegar, but it wasn't really a vinegary kind of kind of taste, um, mm. exactly. Um, Jack, talk to me again, what, what are the ingredients of the sauce? So the sauce, so, so you, you fried the, the kidneys in butter, right? Mm. And then after you take them out, the, the butter is, is still there. Uh, and you add diluted vinegar and powdered mustard, um, and you you heat it for forty five seconds was, was the time given, mm. and then you ch- you add some some chopped parsley and you swirl it around and oh. you, you drizzle it over the over the kidney. So that's what you can see in one of the photos. Um, and you can see the sauce. That's that's what I poured over it. Um, I had one of the kidneys by itself, and then I had the next one with the with the sauce. And yeah, uh, I actually I had to kind of make an executive decision what kind of vinegar to use because the mm. book didn't really say what vinegar they had in ancient same, Egypt. Same, Um So I figured maybe they wouldn't have had distilled malt barley vinegar. So I went with white wine vinegar because I know that they did have wine and it's very easy to go from wine to vinegar. Mm. Um, yeah, That's and also I, I'm not actually not that big a fan of mustard. Like, and I don't like mustard as a as a condiment. You know, like when you get like a jar or whatever of mustard. Um, I figured I'd try it as a uh, in this form and see. Um, so if if I may jump in here, uh, mm-hmm. I know this is meant to be closing, but now there are more talking points. Um, I, I I'm kind of with you. More often than not, I don't like mustard. Um, and I had to make my own mustard to make the cheese, the mustard cheese, because you essentially just spread mustard throughout the cheese and then like a curd it up. Um, the I started making it and I was like, oh, it's going to be awful, like all the mustards. But this mustard was lovely and like i think a lot of like mustards like dijon or um that whole grain mustard like they're kind of uh by virtue of like industrialization or whatever they're kind of mass produced to be kind of like super weapons of itself <laughs> like it's super spicy it's super intense everything's just like ramped up and um, this mustard i made was chill chill <laughs> af like it was just some ground mustard seeds a little bit of vinegar to make it into a bit of a, a paste and like it was so nice that you could just eat it with a spoon as a snack like it didn't have that harsh bitterness it was delicious like absolutely delicious so i, I wonder i wonder is it what you don't like about mustard is the modern hyper mustard we have mm. because this mustard was like if, I, I bet you i could give it to people and not tell them it's mustard and be like what is this thing I, like it's just so not mustard. It's crazy. Um, I'll have to try that. Yeah, I'll make. I'll, I mean, I'll make I have an something. entire bag of of mustard seeds to do something with now. So, oh, stop! I have I have so much wheat bran. I had to buy wheat bran just to dust a surface. Um, I now have like a kilo of wheat bran. I don't know what to do with. I have bulgur wheat. I'd never never cooked a bulgur wheat outside of this this dish. And I'm like, what do I do with these things? I also have the enzymes to make cheese. And I'm like, of all the things, I cannot really 
you know, short of just continuing this cheese making odyssey, I can't really use these enzymes for like anything. Um, so I have a lot of crap lying around the, the kitchen. Anyhow, sorry, you were, you were, uh, summarizing things. Keep going. Um, so that was the sauce. Um, the, the kidney was actually very nice now, uh, today when, when I, when I had, uh, cleaned it out properly and soaked it for a bit longer. Um, uh, as I said, I had to kind of make an executive decision to have something with it. So I just used bread because it was nearby. And I figured if the ancient Egyptians had access to soda bread, they would have eaten it. Oh, yeah. They definitely would have. I think it's safe to assume that anything can be accompanied with bread always. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really have... I think that, that that's all my points. The kind of the assumed knowledge and, you know, what to do with which vinegar, etc. But uh, yeah, it was it was a good experience. Um, I I would I would cook with kidney again. It was it, it turned out nicely. Uh, I probably wouldn't be in a rush to make the sauce again though. I really want to try this sauce. Oh, wait a minute! I have this cookbook in front of me. I could just make said sauce. I yeah. am I am making the sauce. I want to see. I want to see how bad this is, man. Maybe what? Maybe well, we'll now you see. I, I think I think part of it will be the fact that it was the specifically the butter that the kidneys were cooked in, so it'll have some of the, the fats kidney. and stuff mm. that souped out of the meat. Crab, I'm not sure I want to go on a kidney finding odyssey. Mm. Um, do you know? I think we might have missed a trick here, Bill. I think we should have perhaps um, cooked the same dishes, not different dishes. That might have been have been a trick. Okay, next time we do a food episode. We'll cook together, and we'll record together, and we can have eat each other's dishes. Like, as in, we we, we meet each other in meat space and in, cook, yeah. cook in meat. Yeah, our vegan space, whatever. Like, but. <laughs> vegan space. <laughs> we are definitely not vegan. Humans are not vegan. <laughs> um, the yeah, that's an idea actually, and we could maybe do something from Rome or Greece then. Yeah. Hmm. That is a very interesting... Uh, folks, let us know if you're interested in this. I'm not sure how much interest there is in more, like, artifacts in cooking. Um, but if there is interest, yeah, that sounds like a real idea. Uh, final thing uh, before we move on to the rest of the show. Um, just a funny little thing. I went into Holland the Barrett, which is kind of like, for those who don't know, it's like a a kind of like a, a bougie health store. Health foods and supplements and expensive health foods and supplements. Uh, I would I would say this is not yeah, this is for people who have perhaps a little bit more money than sense. Um so I went in there anyways, because a lot of these ingredients were kind of like you can't just get them in any random supermarkets. So I had to go look at the in the in the health stores. Uh, and I went into this Holland and Barrett and I I looked around, couldn't find what I wanted. I began asking at this um I think she was a teenager. Um, perhaps early 20s, the, the clerk, uh, about the ingredients. And she kind of goes like, wow, what on earth are you are you making here? Because uh, it was just a random assortment of ingredients. And then I was like, time for banter. And so without, without like uh, blinking and without missing a beat, I just looked at her dead on and was like, I'm recreating the breakfast of an ancient Mesopotamian temple priest. And then stopped dead. And then she looked at me, was kind of like, what the f***? And then, like, there was this moment of like, is this person crazy? And I was like, it's okay, Edgar. I'm just going to stay here. And I'm just going to let, I'm going to let the orchid stew for a little bit. And you could see her skin crawl. She was like, what do I do and say? And then eventually I was like, I, I have this podcast. It's a, it's an internet thing we're doing. She was like, oh, okay. Okay. It makes sense. <laughs> and there was a moment there where she was mortified. It was hilarious. 
and further actually there's an interesting idea of like how a lot of things if you were just like i am doing x people would be like that's crazy but the minute you caveat it with for the internet everyone's like uh influencers that makes sense <laughs> it's nuts like it's absolutely nuts like you know i I'm, I'm, the the one that comes up with me an awful lot is my job description like i explain to people what i do and they're like wait a minute you sit around building fantasy worlds what and then you go for the internet and they go oh, okay yeah you're a youtuber it's like you know it's 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 just this weird thing you put for the internet on it and everyone goes like that weird behavior is perfectly explainable madness anyhow cooking corner done uh, so bill given that this is the artifact scene cooking show uh you've done some cooking related uh world building correct I, I have done some food-related world-building, correct. Excellent. Do you want to do the usual, give us a rundown, launch into it? Um, it's it's a letter. We have seen uh, one of these characters before, and another one has been mentioned, so keep your earballs peeled for that. Um, and I'll get straight into it. Cool. Makavar, I have left this morning on company business. I may not be home this evening, so I have instructions. Please prepare the spiced atramia jelly for tomorrow's meal. Chief Bailiff Te'adfav is attending, and he has a particular fondness for that meat. Serve it in the Upvevi style. If this is not familiar to you, I shall describe it below. Firstly, remove all the lower appendages being careful to cut as close to the body as possible. The longer limbs should be set aside for curing. The lesser ones may be used as offal. The excess skin of the sack should be carefully cut free. Carefully, I say, as it is required for later use. After these preparations, rub the central bulb with vinegar and salt, and then rinse in cool water. It requires no further cleaning. Stuff the bulb with figs and ice herbs, and rub in oil. Wrap the bulb in the skin from the sack and rub once more with oil and ice herbs. Bake this in the number two oven for three turns of the prime glass. The baker has been left instructions to prepare a setting of tentacles in pastry. Place the roasted bulb in the center of this pastry. I trust the selection of other dishes to your expertise. I will be taking to the table at midnight. As to other business pertaining to the kitchen, it has not escaped my attention that theft of foodstuffs from my stores has increased in the past weeks. As head chef, I expect diligence in ensuring this does not exceed reasonable amounts. Given the frequent food riots in Lansk's current climate, servants relying on company wealth and supplies is advantageous to us. Threatening the stability of those supplies is not. Those serving my household can expect to be well-fed, not to profit from thievery. I have every reason to expect your competence and cooperation in this matter. Your attachment to my current staff is new, but a long and mutually prosperous relationship is certain, should we understand each other. I trust we understand each other. Finally, ensure that all bread, flour and meal ordered for the house are from the mill at First Tower, and ensure it is clearly ordered in the name of my staff. Erbavi is buying the sawdust from my timberworks, 
in exchange for a good price on unadulterated grain. Dajag Tashansha, Commander, Tamar Company Lansk Depot. Okay, cool. Um, we, I gotta say, I was thoroughly confused about what the hell was being cooked up until the last point and was like, I think I get it. Because it's just the, the way the information is, is handed out. You're like, what on earth? It's meat bulb? Really strange. But we'll, we'll get into that. Um, we have met Tashag Deshencha before. Or we have. Yeah, we have. Now, again, I've completely forgotten. So do you want to give me a rundown who the hell he is? Um, so we first encountered Dajag when he was um, at a New Year's celebration in Otvev. Um, it's one of the one of the early things I actually wrote in this in this setting. Um, he was injured and he was on a a kind of uh, a light light duty, um, and went went to a big party. Oh, that's it! It's the holiday celebrations. Yeah, the mm. years rise rattle. Mm. I do remember that. So, so that was the Jag. Um. And then later he was stationed in Lansk and he witnessed the the big riot. Um, that was kind of the the first uh, indication of all that that was happening um, in in the city and all of the kind of the, the labor agitation. Um, that was his next uh, assignment after he had recovered from his injury. Um, and now he's actually been promoted to the depot commander. Oh. So he still he still got a um uh, a job on the ground. He's 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 kind of in an administrative role rather than um working like you know being on a, on a vessel. Uh, and and talk to me about this new character Makavar. Uh, Makavar is the head chef in Dajag's household. I immediately think of like Downton Abbey style things in terms of like how the food is prepared and that sort of crack. Is it is it like that? You have like a a staff who live in the basement who do all the food and cleaning and then somewhat yeah and it will be kind of similar to that okay cool cool, cool. Makavar is an old um military uh kind of associate of of the shags and he's he's given them this job uh because of his, their their previous connection oh has Makavar fallen somewhat then i would imagine if you were a military person and now you're cooking it's a bit um, of a social downgrade, no? He wasn't like a, a high-ranking officer or anything, and he's kind of, he's sort of retired from, from the military. Okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, and what about this uh, Chief Bailiff Tay Eithov, uh, who is uh, attending the meal? Anything about him? So we, we've heard of him before. He's the, the Chief Bailiff of uh, Lansk's sort of um, uh, municipal authorities. Um, and he's also from Mearsphere, as uh, Dajag is, um, and they're they're kind of meeting for kind of political strategizing together, or kind of you know working out what to do about the agitation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we get to the food, right? Mm-hmm. So this spiced at Maria jelly, um, Atramia. at Sorry, yeah, a trammy. I read that completely, completely incorrectly. Um, I'm assuming that that is some sort of jellyfish-like thing. 
Yes, more okay. or less. Definitely more so the jelly, less so the fish. Less so a fish? Do you mean as in not in water? Yes. You, sky jellyfish. Yes. <laughs> I'm not wrong. Woo. Okay. Okay. So these are flying gelatinous jelly fish like things. Kind of. They're, they're not really so gelatinous. Um, so the the central the bulb is kind of the central body, um, and that that has a a sack around it that can kind of uh, increase or decrease in in, in buoyancy. Uh, to so it can you know move up and down in the atmosphere, um, and it has tentacles below. Ah, uh, okay. Do you want to hear a very interesting thing about jellyfish? Always. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure if this is all jellyfish or just a particular jellyfish, but there's at least one jellyfish whose brain is wrapped around its esophagus in a donut shape. That right? is very cool. Very cool. But the interesting thing here is that. Um, one could speculate that if the jellyfish were to swallow something a little bit too big, there would be like mechanical stress on the brain as the, the like the blockage passes like under it, you know, um, right. and that pressure, one could speculate, would lead to like uh, a, a sort of narcotic effect on the jellyfish. So in the context, because I'm, I'm thinking a lot about spec bio uh, these days, and this is this is Bibliridium was talking about this about actually uh, about this actually, and was like, you can totally imagine a scenario where um, you have sentient like creatures that evolve from this like proto state, this jelly uh, jellyfish type thing with a um, brain wrapped around esophagus, and they would get high not by consuming chemicals, but just by consuming some sort of implement of food that's a little bit too big for their esophagus. That would get wedged there to form their brain, make them trip balls, and then maybe just melt away after a while. Like a like a gobstopper uh, sort of jazz would be the equivalent of these jellyfish people tripping balls, which is just so fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, anyway, that was the jellyfish thing. So the spiced atramia jelly. So are these, um, given that chief bailiff, like the... Uh, Deshag is a commander, and this guy, there's a chief bailiff. These are important people, I'm assuming. Um, do, yeah. uh, do I also work on the assumption that a spiced atramia jelly is a bit of a delicacy here? Yeah, this is a fancy meal. Okay. And, and this is a very fancy a, meal. A once a year fancy meal? Is it the equivalent of like turkey at Christmas? That sort of jazz. Um, well, uh, um, Deshag did get a taste for it when he was stationed in Opfev. Um, and uh, they had it as as part of their year's rise uh, celebrations. Uh, maybe not quite as as rare as once a year, but yeah, certainly like having a big roast turkey. Okay. Um, so you know, not not everyday fare. The average groundsfolk would probably never have it. Sure, sure. Um, and then yeah, so some of the some of the, uh, the ingredients here, uh, ice herbs. What is an mm-hmm. ice herb? Talk to me about about that. So that's just, um, there's kind of a normal assumed mix of, of herbs that grow in in the, the north of uh, Avesque, of the Avesque area. Um, so like, you know, kind of spicy, herby kind of things um, that are made into a blend. Um, uh-huh. And there, there will be kind of regional variations or different, different uh, chefs or different kitchens may have their own kind of uh, 
ratios their own recipes for it but it's kind of a sort of a normal thing for seasoning uh so this is like the um what's that the thing the those herbs that you get in a tea bag sometimes in fancy schmancy french places um bouquet garni i'll take your word for it <laughs> I, th- oh, I need to, i need to fact check that i think that's bouquet garni apologies french people that is definitely not how it's pronounced but here we are <laughs> um Oh, so like a, a garnish bouquet. Yeah, it's a, it's a bouquet full of uh, assorted herbs or whatever, and it's like a, a sort of standard thing. Like one doesn't order individual herbs, one just buys the bouquet garni. Um, yeah. The emphasis is definitely all over the place on those words. I'm really sorry, French people. Um, okay, stuff with figs, ice herbs. Okay, right, cool. And, and then so are we... Uh, describe the texture of this like jelly type thing are we talking meaty are we talking slimy are we what are we talking it's it's actually it's kind of somewhere between um a, a meat and a mushroom somewhere between a meat and a mushroom oh, oh yeah. so lots of so like vegan substitute food uh possibly <laughs> i don't know there, i've been cooking with a decent bit of tofu recently and i don't imagine it as being like that hmm. um it has it has more um like it definitely has grain to it like it has um you know you know like there's like muscle fibers yeah, yeah. gives the grain to the meat it has it has that um, and i think some mushrooms do as well um, uh, are these jelly things are they plants or animals um yeah i'm not really sure um i would say they're they're probably something more like a uh uh somewhere between a plant and a fungus Okay, all right, grand. Um, yeah. Whether they're, like, actually um, capable of thought isn't clear. Kind of like with jellyfish. I mean, I, I, I thought the consensus with jellyfish is that they're amazingly smart. Are you sure about that? Hmm, I, I'm pretty sure, because I know a lot of people who, um, they're fine with eating meat, but they're, they're, they're weird about eating jellyfish because they're kind of like, these things are super clever. I googled jellyfish intelligence... And it says, jellyfish are not very smart. They have very simple sensory organs and no brain to process wait, any information. Wait, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, I'm not smart. Are you smart. thinking of, like, seals? No, I was thinking of octopuses. Oh, okay, yes. Sorry, I was completely wrong there. Sorry, folks. Um, right, yeah, of course, yeah, jellyfish aren't that smart. Um, um, ice herbs, right? Um, then it says, bake in the number two oven. What is a number two oven? Is that just the second oven in the kitchen, or what's that about? Yeah, this is, there, there he has various ovens in his kitchen, and that's that's the the, the correct one to bake this at. Like there is there is a routine. Different ovens will be used for different things, and will be kept in, at different temperatures, or you know, th- things like that. They will have sort of different settings and different things that they're suited for. Uh, and then afterwards, after describing the recipe, uh, Dejak says, "I will be taking to the table at midnight." Um, mm. What what's that about? That's a very that's very late to be eating. What's the sort of expected time to be eating for uh, the abeski? Um, for events like that, uh, yeah, it could be a late it could be a late thing. Um, especially like if he's if he's expected to be off on business. And Eitvalv is a very busy man, has a lot of business to do. Um, so that's just, look, they, they often shift their 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 schedules in that direction. Uh, but, um, but ordinarily, what's the sort of eating time? Do the Ibeski and do peoples on this, this world, do they generally follow like the, um, the solar cycle, like eat when the sun goes down, 
breakfast when the sun comes up, that sort of thing? Or is it... Um, I'd imagine sort of uh, regular working people would, but uh, not necessarily um, the the elite. Okay. And is there would there be a general culture of... Uh, what's the culture surrounding dinner, do you know of? Like, are they a culture that values having a big giant meal in the middle of the day? Or are they very much a prioritize breakfasts because i often find that very interesting that some cultures are kind of like the thought of having dinner at six is nonsense you just have a big breakfast and a little bit of lunch and that's you for the day and then you ask a different culture it's an entirely different eating regimen throughout the day so what's the um is let's say specific specifically for the upper classes what's their sort of typical regimen um would be i hmm, that's a good question let me think about that I suppose, yeah, an evening meal would be the 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 main one, um, because that's when you can you can do this kind of like business and networking sort of mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. So culturally, that would be kind of uh, emphasized there. Um, for groundsfolk, I don't know the the time of day when they're not working. So depending on their on their shifts, etc. Yeah, um, I suppose, like you said, it's very much tied to the um natural rhythm of the day no mm-hmm. um and then all the way at the bottom of the end I, i'm not sure if there's anything to bring up about the thievery um in the middle paragraph other than i felt like that was tying it to the general narrative thread that's been going on of late um so i'll skip that but feel free to come back to it later um at the end you were like, uh, finally, ensure that all bread, flour, and meal ordered for the house are from the mill at First Tower. Uh, why? What is this place? Is this some sort of renowned wholesaler? What's that about? Because Erbavi is buying the sawdust from the mill and giving him a good price on unadulterated grain. Who Who is Erbavi? I'm confused. She She owns the mill at the First Tower. Oh, okay. Oh, so, sorry. He's just getting a good deal. Sorry, sorry, sorry. My bad. Um, yeah, that's... That's all my points. What what have you got to say about it? Um, why is it? Why is the the woman who runs the the bread mill buying sawdust? Why is the woman who is running the bread mill bread mill buying sawdust? I can think of two things. Uh, mm-hmm. One one uses sawdust to like light fires and cook things, mm-hmm. or I suppose in more nefarious things that you put a bunch of sawdust in with flour and it's cheaper to produce bread. Exactly that. Exactly. <laughs> exactly that. Which is historically like very, very common. Yeah, apparently, which is just mental. Yeah. Absolutely mental. Gross. It is gross, isn't it? Um what else have we got? Um so about the yeah, the the kind of the the paragraph about the theft and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um essentially here there is a a culture of kind of mild corruption. Yeah, because you say so like do make sure the theft doesn't exceed reasonable amounts. Yeah, hmm. so it's kind of, you know, they're they're kind of hoping that the commander will 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 turn a blind eye to theft from his his household, and the servants kind of they regard that as as a kind of an unspoken perk, um, and he's he's happy to do that so that you know they will be loyal because they can get their food there, and if he clamps down on it. Um, they will have less food and they will be less secure and their families will be less secure. So it's kind of like allowing a, a little bit of corruption as a sort of a, a, a pressure valve I mean, um, sure, for but discontent. Could they not just formulate that into like part of the contract? As in, you work here, every week you get X amount of whatever. 
Oh, I mean, they do, but the wages aren't very good. Yes, but what I'm saying is, why why can't you? Ju- why could they just like um, like legalize the corruption, <laughs> like as in make that be like you get this wage here, but just like I'm telling you formally, you can also take X amount of carrots, as opposed to leaving that to like the the kitchen black market to sort out. I mean, like this this kind of thing happens a lot um, historically, and there's there's a variety of reasons for it. Partially, it's just kind of a a culture thing. And no one has gotten around to uh, legislating it out or, or, you know, ruling it out. Um, you know, things don't always follow the, the most, what might seem like the most sensible thing at the end, because there's all the factors that go into getting to that point that have to be dealt with. Um, and, you know, it, if, if they were giving giving that as a perk legitimately and openly there maybe other people would expect similar kind of perks and similar better treatment whereas if it's done as a sort of acknowledged corruption it's still kind of deniable yeah that makes sense and actually as you explain it a, a parallel occurs to me with, with tipping culture in in the u.s um where i guess you could make the argument like why not just instead of having those tips occur like as a random benefit and just bake it into the employee's salary, employee's salary. And I guess that's kind of the same thing I was saying. And, you know, yeah. when you put it in that context, you're like, well, these things don't always happen and hence tipping culture in the States. But I guess as well... Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. Yeah, why not just increase the prices and then give the, the, the thing more pay? Like increase the prices by the 20% that mm. you would charge for a tip or whatever. And then give the, all of that to the to the employees, but yeah, just you know that would be a sensible way to do it, but it just doesn't necessarily happen. Sure, and I guess the I suppose I, I've heard that people defend uh, tipping culture in states um, with the, saying that like um, you should be able to like reward good service because mm-hmm. um, I, I I think the argument goes that like if you can't elect tip or not, and that person just get paid gets paid the extra. Uh, they are not incentivized to like serve you well or some nonsense like that. I don't understand that argument. I think it's nonsense anyways. But I think it would imply, uh, apply in the kitchen here as well. But It's kind of like if you work extra hard, maybe the person who oversees the storeroom or whatever might be like, well, you know what? Today you can take five carrots, but you, John, yeah. you only take two. You didn't clean the cooker well enough. Like I suppose there might be a bit of a like um, <laughs> literal carrot and sticks going on there. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, the you, you know, it gives it gives them uh, an extra tool with which to kind of um, you know if if someone is is being out of line, well then they can say, oh well, you stole something. Yeah, um, you can make it legit when you when you require it to be legit. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, for sure, exactly. for sure. Um, um, speaking of uh, carrot and stick, um, you know, I I say uh, the. About the about the the longer limbs should be set aside for curing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they can be used to make whips. Oh, and yeah. is that the exclusive thing, or would you also cure them into to make like jerky? Uh, possibly, um, you could possibly cut actually, yeah. Um, but here they're they're being set aside for for curing for like kind of punishment whips. Wow, that's I never picked up on that. That is really dark. No, I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't specify it there. There wasn't anything to suggest that that was what it was for, but that's what it's for. Um, uh, I also have a, I have a whole kind of thing about what, uh, what 
Dajag and uh, Ta'ith Father up to. Uh, what do you mean you have a whole type of thing? Um, I mean, I, 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 there was no way to put this into this memo that he wrote for his uh, for his head chef. Um, but they're they're meeting up to coordinate the the protection that the bailiff is putting on the bailiffs are putting on the various kind of food depots so that the riots won't happen at Tamari depots. They'll happen at the other companies. Oh, um, nice. Yeah. So to both uh, kind of decrease pressure on the 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 Tamari um, food supplies because people will be getting it from from the stuff being stolen from the other companies um, and to increase their own kind of uh, stock value or whatever um, because they're they're having better better security and are better able to to provide services and deliveries and things um, and so yeah he's just like totally uh, totally bribing uh, to Eidfav total corruption and I suspect I suspect that there's some kind of I suspect that Dajag has something over the the chef as well it's, I trust we understand each other that, that he knows he's he's capable of um, elegant corruption um, but he has something over him that, that is keeping him in line yeah I mean one doesn't get to be commander of anything without having some sort of dirt on a lot of people um, I would assume so yeah that's just like par for the course and yeah he does he does you do state that i trust we understand each other we should should we understand each other i trust we understand each other you you emphasize that twice so yeah clearly mm. he knows something um i love how my brief was like can you make like a cooking ray post and like again i was expecting just like a pamphlet on how to make tamari tea but I, <laughs> we've 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 uh, we've still baked it into the unrest that's going on i think that's great I, guess really, yeah. I think it's really fun you didn't do the expected thing of just making a cookbook entry I think that's that's pretty cool yeah I mean I kind of I, I started in that but it's just it's not very interesting and you can't give a lot of extra flavor to it you can't give a lot of extra kind of world interesting world building into it um, or you know just like you'd have to make up the um, measurements and things make up the the measurements units etc which is kind of an you know an, an, an interesting thing to do but it's not a very engaging read i mean yeah i guess i i guess the way i would have done it was much like uh, ancient civilizations the uh, cooking in ancient civilizations i would have just uh, made it a recipe like an abesky recipe of a ethani Eth- earthani uh dish Mm. And have loads of footnotes to be all like, oh, well, in these regions, this would have been particularly prevalent, but you can substitute with this thing, which in the Abeski regions is a lot more prevalent. You could do something like that. Yeah. Um, and I and I guess you could also bake into some like some uh, pretty racist things into it to be all like, you know, like the thick ignorant or thannies only cook this in this sort of vessel, vessel, but clearly that's way inferior to cooking in this vessel and you can you know, bring in prejudice and that sort of thing. But I think, I think you're right. And just like, if it was a, a, a like a cold, uh, cookbook, just, just literally like a list of ingredients and then a methodology that would be pretty boring. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right. Um, sky jelly done. Uh, I think that's done. Hey, okay. Uh, let's now, let's now finish with the beginning of the show. Uh, yeah, let's open with some follow-up. 
let's open with some follow-up. Um, so do you remember ages and ages and ages ago when I was in Korea, we talked about Korean age and how I think it's I awesome. Do. And for, just for, for people who are unaware, my understanding is, and I am not Korean, so I'm liable to get this wrong. Korean people, if you're listening, please write in and correct me. Uh, but my understanding is that um, in Korea, there is a at least an age system uh, that says that you are, when you exit the womb, you are one. So your zeroth birthday is on conception or whatever. You exit the womb at one. And then everyone in the country at the same time on, I think it's like January the 1st, increases a year in age, regardless of when you were born. So if you were born December 30 days has September 31st. We were born on the 31st of December. Uh, you would be one on 31st of December. And then on the, on the 1st of, uh, of January, you would be two. And that's kind of how the system works. And I think that is like really fun. And I think it's, it's a little bit, I guess it's like, it's not as efficient as maybe other systems out there because there can be confusion as like, you know, there's different types of two-year-olds. Like you could have a very old two-year-old and a very young two-year-old, but mm-hmm. it's not. It's not radically a radical departure from the ambiguity that occurs in our system. I think it's great. Um, and I was just browsing the internet, and I saw an article from the BBC here that says that uh, Koreans are thinking about switching over to the international age system, and I was really sad because I'm like, that's I. I just. I'm always sad when there's homogenizing of culture uh, and particularly when people, uh, we talked long and hard about this before, but like people who are not the, the dominant cultures on the world stage are kind of like forced uh, in a way to just like get in line with what everyone else is doing. So they are like, no one's going to, no one's going to like no American or no English person or no European is going to adopt Korean age, but the Koreans are kind of sort of have to, are forced to adopt international age. And that makes me really sad. Um, But the article does state that, um, you know, the the Korean, this this tradition of, of Korean age may well live on in like colloquial terms. And I think that's really dope. And apparently also this, this has been a thing that, the government has tried to do for a while. There's been a couple of bills to try and um, get uh, international age to be the norm. And they keep being defeated, which is I'm also really happy about because I'm like, yes, we need like interesting culture and flavor. Like we don't all have to be Westerners. Like, come on, this is all this is awesome. Mm. Um, so I just I, I just came across that and it, it reminded me of uh, podcast episodes many moons ago. And I, I thought I'd bring it up. Links in the show notes to the article for everyone. Cool. Yeah. Yep. I mean, and you, you, uh, uh, I'm assuming you would agree, like, because you don't strike me as a man who is, um, who is uh, anti other cultural practices. You don't strike me as a person who's all like, no, you must be like us and that's it. Um, you've got me so wrong, Edgar. There should only be one culture. That's, that is my firm belief. No, of course. Of course. Um, I mean, I, I find that one very peculiar, that specific one quite peculiar. Um, I mean, you know, it doesn't actually matter in any way, but just it's it's so different to to how we think of age and like, you know, you know, a two year old should be able to, you know, should be able to walk, etc. Um, I mean, that's, that's just what I'm thinking because, you know, a lot of my friends are having kids and stuff. So I'm thinking in, in, in those terms and it's, it's just it's peculiar to me to have something that where that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but yeah, it doesn't actually really matter. No, it's just it's just a different way of counting things. And obviously, 
because everyone understands how the the thing is calculated, they're not going to think of that in the same way. They're not going to think, well, a two-year-old has to be able to walk because that expectation is is arrived from a totally different point of view. Yeah, and I mean, there's an awful lot that we do um, where we need to have age ranges to clarify things. Like, you know, an 18 to 24-year-old will be expected to do X, Y, and Z. Um, We already have that, and we already have that ambiguity. Um, there, I, yeah. there, there's always going to be ambiguity in any sort of age system, unless you know you you give your age in like in hours, in hours exactly, or or time seconds since the Big Bang. Um, that's the only way you're going to have non-ambiguity. So, like every system has ambiguity. Just the Korean system has ambiguity in a different way, and I would hate to lose that flavor from the world. Um, Agreed. So, I, I think it's dope, uh, at least according to BBC article, notably not a Korean article. Apologies for this, folks. Um, but I think it's dope that there doesn't seem to be any great incentive for, like, um, regular people to drop it. I think that's cool. Um, you know, you can have one thing official and then just everyone does whatever they want outside of official context. I think that's re- really awesome. So long live Korean age practices. Don't lose it. It's class. Uh, and if anyone knows of alternative age uh, practices, aging or age listing practices age counting uh practices from around the world let me know because the only ones i know of really are the korean one and our one um i don't really know of a third so if anyone does know please let me know that would make for some really interesting follow-up absolutely all right point two uh, point two came from uh, various sources from uh the youtube comments from reddit there's a couple of people so i'm not going to list anyone in particular because loads of people brought the thing um we talked bill last time you were talking about uh planets remember we were talking about orbital motion and yep. you had said something to the effect of uh you had postulated a scenario where there was a planet who had uh, one face facing a star always but it was like rotating so it's like on its side rotating around uh but one pole was always facing the star yeah yes that's what i was trying to explain yeah. interrogate and you can hear me if you go back and listen to this folks you can hear my brain go wait though that's not correct and then for me to like struggle to try and explain why the hell that will be incorrect and mm-hmm. i f- failed miserably on air uh and the reddit and youtube put it perfectly just that that scenario can simply not happen because it just violates um the conservation of momentum momentum. yeah Yeah. exactly Uh, and if you have a planet where the same face is looking at the star always that necessarily means that its rotational period is equal to its orbital period like that's the only stable scenario there. Yeah. You can't have a scenario where one pole is facing the planet and the planet is facing star and the planet is rolling around uh, on its side. Um, I did such a bad job of explaining that. Like, just I should have just used those two words, angular momentum, but I just it just didn't come to me at, at the time. And there was a whole lot of waffling, and I, so I need to apologize for that, folks. I'll forgive you in time. In time. It'll <laughs> take a little bit of time. Um, further clarifying point on, again, last show, I think it was Harry Cook um, uh, sent in their Celtic language and we got talking about animate um, mass nouns. And again, you know, were this scripted, I think I would have picked words a little bit better here. Um, I think a lot of people uh, uh, took, uh, took away from what I was saying that like, I think the concept of animate mass nouns just don't exist like they shouldn't exist because we care about animate things and we like to count 
animate things. Um, therefore, there is no such thing as an animate mass noun. Um, what I was more trying to get at, and, and I think did badly, was just highlighting the notion of animacy, animacy divides in uh, nominal counting. Like, it's really common for like animate things to just be way more countable than non-animate things. And I think the way Harry's email was was laid out, um, and this could be my bad for misreading it, it seemed to like uh, give a a special place of importance to animate mass nouns. And I was like, that's kind of that's kind of weird. Like usually animate mass nouns are kind of like they're sprinkled there, but they're very like they don't happen very often. Every, most animate things are countable. But I think Harry's email to me, anyways, felt like there was a a, a great deal of importance uh, placed upon animate mass nouns. Um, so that's the point I was trying to make. Hey, folks, animacy split in counting is a thing. We really like to make animate nouns countable, and we don't really like making them uh, mass nouns. Both can exist. There's just a, an extreme preference for, for count animate nouns. Um, I hope that makes more sense than last episode. I think so. Hey, good, good, good. Um, f- uh, fourth thing, geez, we're... we're, we're it's it, this is such a weird format the reverse show because like usually we start off with the follow-up and there's like a rapid fire bullet points follow-up and then we like chill and listen to bill and then there's a waffle at the end but this is so strange to have the chill part of the thing it's like it's like the, the harmonic progression of the show is increasing uh as we get to the end which is the polar opposite of what we usually do it's very strange um but anyhow, Samuel uh, writes in to send us an email, again, on the subject of uh, what we talked about last month. We talked about retrograde climates a little bit, and they sent in a bunch of uh, papers and sites for uh, anyone who's interested in working with retrograde climates. I will stick those in the show notes um, for anyone who's interested. Notable, though, I didn't get we didn't get any emails or any feedback from people uh, sending in papers for high obliquity climates, which I remember talking about in the last show, is the one that's I've stu- has stumped me for a long time. Can't find anything decent on a high obliquity climates. Lots on retrograde planets, climates because it's like a lot. It's an easier task to try and solve. High obliquity is a nightmare. So if anyone does have papers on high obliquity high obliquity climates, please please send it my way. Um, and I have a further point, but that. Last point is a bit of a discussion point, so I might actually park that. You have something to bring up here from all of you being, Bill. Yes, so um, on Reddit and the, the comments from the last episode, um, all of you being asked, would it be possible for society to develop that uses two different bases in different situations? Um, so that had counted coins in base 12 because it has more useful divisors, but counted animals in base 10 because you can keep track with your fingers etc. I'm not sure of any examples of this exactly, but I do know that there is a kind of a tension within Celtic languages that historically used base 20. Uh, They were vigesimal, is that how you say the word? I I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, Historically, they they would have been vigesimal, but in modern times with kind of um, Celtic Renaissance and stuff, they, they are often base 10. So that's that's definitely the case in Welsh, and I think in Irish as well. And I think it yep. might be slightly more common to use the vigesimal for counting time and stuff, and then decimal for other things. Um, so I guess what one of the the ways that that could develop is influence from other languages or influence from a from a, another language group. Um, 
would be one one route into a, a situation like that that all of you been describes. Yeah, I mean the base twenty mixed with base thing is um is really I wouldn't say really common, but it happens a lot. Like you have it in French as well. Oh yeah. Uh, the word for eighty is is four twenties. Yeah. And things like that. Um, that's not. In fact, I think there's actually. I'll put this in the show notes. I think there's actually a walls page on uh, no bases, num, numeral, num, the English figure, numeral bases in counting and language. And I think I think they're titled hybrid decimal systems. I think I'll leave okay. the page. This is this is the thing that occurs quite a lot. And I, I responded to all of you being in the Reddit, um, citing the off-sited uh, yam counting thing mm. that goes on where um they use base six to count the yams uh, but only in the context of the yam pounding ceremony and outside of that they use a different base i'm unsure i've never looked into it more than this but i wonder if the are you the, eating again i am yeah <laughs> how's the bread now the bread it's it's free it's really nice it's just very tough um, so what I've been doing is I've been soaking the bread in the sort of cheese juice and that softens it up a little bit, which sounds gross, but it's delightful. <laughs> um, but anyway, what was I saying? Um, yeah, I wonder if in the base six system, they use an entirely different set of numbers or they use the same numbers. I always wondered that, um, but I don't, I don't actually know. But these things happen um, where there's different bases going on for different things. I wonder... Just thinking about the ceremonial thing, could you come come at it from um from a music point of view that like they have the counting that's normal for everyday usage and then they've got a different numeric system for counting rhythms? Oh. Maybe That's an interesting one, isn't it? Well, how wait, how does that tie to we sure we don't have that in our music tradition that we have different What is that what do you No, I know we don't. All right, and um, but why did you go like? Why is it like a music? Oh wait, are you implying that in the the ceremony, the ceremony is a musical one? Well, I'm just like it is a ceremonial thing, and it involves counting, and that's like a specific usage, and you know, music as well could be a specific usage, and it you know it doesn't need to conform to the the same um, oh, yeah. limits of communication as counting sheep or counting fingers or whatever. Yeah. But it could still be understood as a as numbers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, possibly. I don't know is the answer. I, if I can find uh, the Wikipedia page, if there's a Wikipedia page on the am counting, I'll throw it in the show notes. Um, I don't know, hmm. but um, but yeah, these mixed systems like happen a lot. Um, okay, now the final point of the show. Sorry, I'm eating the bread again. The chew zone. I'm moving the microwave. Hold on. It's so good though. This sounds like like massaging my own ego for my cooking. It's not that. I was just expecting everything to be horrible and bland. But it's really tasty food. Like, really tasty. Um, James Gunter. Final point. James Gunter writes us an email. Um, and they take issue with a stance I have, which I think is actually an interesting debate point. I'd like to have with you, Bill, if that's okay. Um, I'll, sure. read out, I'll read out the whole email. Um, I've had some gripe. Uh, Dear Edgar. I've had some gripes about some of your views on worldbuilding for some time now, and your comments on the recent podcast were simp- uh, about simply modding the Earth's climate and model. Don't get me wrong, I respect your content, but I feel as though you are scared by uncertainty about different conditions other than Earth-like. Many studies have been done about non-Earth-like conditions, and I think you have neglected them. 
If any in life, if, if any alien life is ever found, it is highly unlikely to be on a planet that is a modded Earth. My question is, do you think that world building that strays too far from Earth-like is unrealistic? So I think this is really interesting, right? James has me pinned fairly well here. Like, I fall heavily on the side of, like, keep things kind of like they are and just tweak little bits and bobs here, sprinkle a little bit of flavor, but don't, like, do a radical redesign of of an Earth-like planet. Stick to the one we already have. Um, And I know other people who are not like that at all. Like, I know other people who are kind of like, you know... Uh, their universe is multiple flat planes of magical existence that interact together by like some sort of psychic consciousness that people can travel through and like they go mad like um and like yeah there's just two different sides of the spectrum there i think i fall far on the conservative end of the spectrum it's not for my for my thing it's not that i'm scared by uncertainty i just find it that sometimes when things get a little bit too out there. I find it really hard to just uh, care about it, you know, um, and to engage with it. I'm just kind of like, that is super weird. Great. Like, it's fun that this super weird thing has been made, but I don't dig it as much, you know. Uh, I get great joy in keeping things, like, very earth-like, but tweaking something and going, oh, if I just make this one cheek tweak, everything changes. Like, I put a little bit of chlorine in the atmosphere, and suddenly all the trees are made out of rubber. That's really interesting as opposed to like I have a planet that is uh, orbiting four stars and it's actually a double planet system with five moons and a ring system and uh, it all, uh, there's the, the whole solar system is passing by a like it, it passes by the black hole periodically at the center of the galaxy and all this sort of thing. It's like that's a bit much like it's a bit much for me. I like to keep things yeah stay within the realms of certainty tweak things and then um, watch the madness come from that. Um, and the other point about it is that um, if alien, the James says if alien life is ever found, it's highly unlikely to be on a planet that is modern Earth. That is correct, um, for sure. The thing about that is, though, um, if we do find alien life somewhere, um, chances are, if it's not on a place that is kind of like Earth, it's going to be so radically different to Earth-like life that it's just going to be like hard to care about it from a narrative sort of sense. Like, I think of some episodes of Star Trek where they postulated, like, um, like intelligent gas clouds roaming interstellar space. Like, it's very hard to, like, make a D&D campaign, for example, where you're an intelligent gas cloud. Like, that's so far removed from the human experience and how humans experience the world that it becomes kind of like just very difficult to engage with and kind of uninteresting, like too trippy. Um, so that's, again, that's another thing why I think like, I like taking very earth-like conditions and just tweaking certain things because anyone looking at it can still be like, oh, this is like an earth-like planet, right? This isn't anything radically crazy. I can kind of engage with this pretty easily, but there's some weirdness around the edges. So that's a thing. Um, that's why I, yeah, one of the reasons why I, I, I fall on this side. And then the final thing before I pass it over to you, Bill, is that I think whenever I do kind of evangelize the uh, just take earth and mod it a bit, I, I think there can be, uh, uh, people can hear in it an implicit, I think that's the air quotes right thing to do. And if you do anything different, you're doing like world building wrong. 
I just want to make that like really clear. Like that is not the case. Like this is just how I like to do it. And I like to tell people how I like to do things and then take it or leave it. There is no right or wrong. It is an art form. If you want to go for like mad, weird and wacky, push the boundaries of how we think about how the intelligent life, for example, could arise and live on a planet, you go for that. That's like entirely cool. And I, I would celebrate someone for doing that. It's it's just not my back. But there's no judgment call in there on my part at all. Yeah. Yes. Do you so thoughts on that? Do you agree? Disagree? Do you have anything to add? Um, I think you made all of the points I was going to make. Wow, yeah. that's really rare, Bill. Because <laughs> usually I say a thing and then your immediate thing is. Edgar, no, you're entirely wrong about this because X, Y, Z. That's a bit harsh. No, no I don't. No, no, that's harsh towards me, not towards you. I'm, I'm, I'm being self-degrading that I can't come up with decent talking points, and you rebut them very easily. No, I, I, I think you're right. Like, there's basically, especially for what you do, which is explore kind of the scientific basis and the maths behind things. Um, it is a lot more difficult to do that. Um. When when it's the more speculative it gets, the more difficult it is to do your job. Um, that, well, that was going to be my first point, but what you you leaned more on, which is what I was going to say, um, is it's just it's harder to engage in as hmm. a as a consumer, as a a reader of the story, or or whatever. Um, it's it it can be really worthwhile. It can be really engaging. It can be very effective, but it is it is more difficult. Um to do that and keep the kind of the same level of rigor that's involved in what you do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, like there's, there is definitely scope within world building to do that stuff hundred um, percent. And I would enjoy seeing that. Um, and, you know, I would enjoy seeing the different kinds, like you said, the, the really kind of out there, you know, shifting planes held together by psychic consciousness uh, that's fantastic. Um, or, you know, do something really kind of hardcore, scientifically accurate, but just very, very other. All great approaches, but it's just, you know, it's just a different flavor and a different approach. Yeah, it's just a personal place thing. And then, but I, I think another thing actually I meant to say, and I should have said previously, um, is that uh, another reason why I fall on the side of the more kind of, <clears throat> God, this bread, sorry. Oh, and now the beer is warm. Oh, God. This Mesopotamian breakfast is going south fast. Um, uh, south of the border, down old Mesopotamia way. <laughs> uh, another reason why I fall kind of more on the conservative end of things is that um, I've been surrounded by creative people my, like my whole life. Like my dad was an architect and an artist. Um, you know, I studied music um in, in college, I uh, tra- trained for a summer to be a sculptor with sculptors uh, for a little bit. And so I was always like interested and surrounded by creative people. And like literally throughout my entire life, every time I engaged in any sort of creative uh, endeavor, I was always kind of, and I, I sought advice from those around me. Uh, I was always given the advice of like just be less weird, <laughs> you know, like, like rein it in a little bit. Like you don't have to paint using every single color possible right now. Just constrain yourself a little bit, like keep things more, um, low key. Um, and I think that's- You're a maximalist by nature. 
I am a bit. I am a bit. Um, and I think that spills over to how I think about world building. It's like, yeah, I could have a planet that has like uh, a high obliquity uh, planet that has rings, that's also retrograde, that also has a double planet, that's also at a Lagrange point and put all the things I know that we can do that's kind of weird in the astrophysics domain or the astronomy domain, put it all into one setting. But like I've been trained over the years to just immediately go, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Do one of those things and like make it like a feature of, of the thing you're doing. Um, and yeah, I think that's just become second nature now. Um, so if you talk to Edgar, like, I don't know, 15 years ago, I might've been, and in fact, I think some of my early attempts at world building were this, where they're just kind of like kitchen sink world building. It's like, I know a thing, high axial tilt, that's going to be put into this project, no matter what's already in the project. Um, so I think that's another reason why, why I err on this conservative thing is I, I've had it drilled into me by a bunch of creative people throughout my life that I respect. And they all seem to share this kind of common ethos of like, less is more, um, don't go too mad, let complexity arise out of simple decisions, that sort of thing. Um, would you agree with that sort of ethos, Bill? Let complexity arise out of simple conditions? Yeah. Don't, don't... Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I'd say so. I, that's kind of an interesting way to, to do it, like change a, a small element and see what the knock-on effects of that are hmm. for sure um or i think the salient one that always sticks to me is like in in composition class in college i remember doing the like going mad with like i want to do everything all at once mm-hmm. and um uh, the professor was like okay tell you what just go away for a week uh will you just write like a short piece of music you limit yourself to it being short you're not writing an epic hour-long piece just short uh, and just give me two notes pick two notes that's your that's that's all you can do two notes one page of music go um and i remember being like this is and then as i started writing i was like oh wait a minute this is actually kind of like this constraint is awesome mm. and then at the end of it you end up with this like really complex thing but it starts from very simple conditions um, yeah. and that that i find to be deeply pleasing you know uh, and again just to tie it explicitly back in world building that's the equivalent for me taking a planet, putting a smidge of ox- uh, chlorine in the atmosphere, and then weird stuff happens, as opposed to it's a planet orbiting a black hole, um, which, I don't know, intelligent uh, um, space dust around it. Like, that just doesn't do anything for me. Um, I, mean, yeah. I think the way I, I often think about music, um, and it sort of applies here, is, and it applies in a lot of situations, Things are can be better defined by what they aren't or what they don't do than what they do do. The, the, the restrictions are often better at defining what things are. Um, it's all about I, it's all about the notes you don't play, Bill. <laughs> um, and I think that kind of can be applied a bit here. Like if if you're if you're trying to do everything, it, it's hard for any one thing to mean anything at all. And I th- I think if you get if you have like super weird out there speculative settings, I think that kind of almost lends itself to attempting to do everything to like mm. maximize the speculativeness of the setting. So therefore, you do all the things, and as you say, it means that any one thing doesn't mean as much. Yeah. But I want to just reiterate that is not a judgment call. <laughs> like that is literally just my personal taste. Um, sure. 
I'm, I'm not, I really don't want people to go away with this thinking like there is a right or wrong way to create art. Like there absolutely isn't. Um, so that's just really important. I'm just trying to give you where, how I'm thinking and how we yeah. think about this. Um, art, there's no right and wrong in art. One can't stress that enough. And anyone who does tell you that there's a right and wrong in art is a, is a silly person. Don't listen to them. <laughs> um, closing points. Go for it. No, I was asking, do you have any closing points or is that the show? I, I don't think I have, I have any closing points. I think I think all of my points have been made. Brilliant. Um, I enjoyed this topsy-turvy weird show today, Bill. I liked it. Is this an example of making one change, <laughs> doing the show in reverse and seeing what happens? I mean, I would say the one change is deciding to cook and then that like leading to oh well crap the cooking section has to go first because the food needs That's to be true. warm ergo the whole show has to be reversed ergo this might be the genesis of an entirely new form factor for the artifacts in podcast who knows like things could get mad trippy from here on in we just don't know but we started off with a very simple thing we'd like to make breakfast <laughs> could do like a sonata form episode where like we talk about two things in the first segment and then we talk about them like separately and then we talk about how they connect together in the second segment and then the third segment we talk about them both again but the second one is now the same thing as the first one. Oh my god this is this is going to lead to like a whole tangent that may or may not be cut yeah we yeah we we need, we need to we need to stop this before we get into a tangent no 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 no, no Jesus no we're going to get into the tangent hold on I'm really intrigued this our usual show bill. What would you describe its form factor as? Because there's clearly three sections. Yeah. But they don't, like, so it's not a through-composed format. Uh, But these sections have no real interaction with one another. So, like, it was just, like, a straight ABC. But what is ABC? Like, that's no, there's no label for that form, is It's a short rhapsody. What's a rhapsody? Um, like, A, B, C, D... E, whether they're, they're not necessarily related to each other. Is that is that the definition of rhapsody? Just like that's, loads... that's, that's what that's what rhapsodic form is. Yeah. Oh, I never, I've never, I didn't say I never experimented rhapsodic form. That sounds like a mad cop out altogether. That sounds like a form where someone just didn't want to do form. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could make that argument. Yeah. Ah, so so oh my god! So the, the, what we do is like we do a rhapsody on world building. Yeah, I suppose. The title of the show. Oh no. I, I actually that is a that is a strong this is a strong uh case for title and it actually kinda of makes me happy. Well it's got nothing to do with food. I think I think the title should be food related. Oh. Yeah, but rhapsody on cooking doesn't make any I'd like to have like a rhapsody thing in there. I'll think about it. And now we see if I do make a rhapsody related title this part of the show would have to remain in the show in order for that title to make any degree of sense. True. (laughs) I mean, you can leave it in either way, but if you do call it that, you have to leave it in. That is fair. That is fair. Uh, But uh, but I suppose if the title of the show isn't Rhapsody, this whole bit would just be a bit of a slog for people. Potentially. Hmm. I have decisions to make on the cutting room floor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I really enjoyed myself, but that was really fun. Uh, if folks, if you really like this, uh, this food crack, uh, let us know and uh, we, we can expand upon it a little bit perhaps because I am mad interested in learning about how different people's cook. Um, I think that's really fun. 
um, to learn about. Um, yeah, outside of that, that is the show. Uh, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show on Patreon. Links to all of these things are in the show notes. Um, until next time, Edgar, Edgar out. out. Thank mm-hmm. you.